This is IAQ Radio, Indoor Air Quality Radio, the voice of the indoor air quality industry, with your hosts, Radio Joe Hughes and the Z-Man, Cliff Zlotnick. And now, Radio Joe Hughes. Good day and welcome to IAQ Radio Plus, episode 667. This week, we welcome back Mr. Brad Prezant to IAQ Radio. He's going to discuss assessing risk infection and air exchange. We'll also focus on different methods for doing this type of assessment, go over the pitfalls and benefits of different methods. We pre-recorded this last night, so Brad wouldn't have to get up at 3 a.m. and uh, join us today, but uh, we're going to be taking any questions and getting them back to Brad and letting you know what we find out if you have questions. Before we get started, let's thank our sponsors. They're the reason we can continue doing the show. And don't forget after the show to continue the discussion at afterthoughts.iaqradio.com. Sponsored by our marquee sponsor, First On Site. Our marquee sponsor is First On Site at firstonsite.com. Our association sponsors are the American Conference of Governmental Industrial Hygienists, ACGIH.org. The American Industrial Hygiene Association, AIHA.org. The Cleaning Industry Research Institute, CIRIScience.org. The Indoor Air Quality Association, IAQA.org. The Institute for Inspection, Cleaning, and Restoration Certification, IICRC.org. Industry sponsors are AEML Laboratories, AEMLINC.com. Particles Plus, ParticlesPlus.com. TSI Inc., TSI.com. Sunbelt Rentals, SunbeltRentals.com. April Air. April, A-I-R-E dot com. Healthy Indoors Magazine, HealthyIndoors.com. And now you can win a cool prize. It's time for the IAQ Radio trivia question. Be the first to correctly answer. Simply email your answer to czlotnick at cs.com. Or if listening live, just text your answer from your computer. And now, here's the Z-Man. Hello, everyone. The IQ Radio Trivia question for today, June 17th, 2022, has been sponsored by TSI Inc., an industry leader in precision instrumentation for the monitoring of indoor air. Learn how to expand your IAQ investigations at TSI.com. Here's today's IAQ Radio Trivia question. What caused the death of 12,000 Australians in 1919? Back to you, Joe. Brad Prezant is an evidence-based public health scientist with a background in epidemiology, occupational health and hygiene, and ergonomics. He's currently the principal consultant at Prezant's Environmental in Melbourne, Australia. He was the chief editor of the AIHA's first edition of Recognition, Evaluation, and Control of Indoor Mold. He's a past vice president for practice of ISIAC. And most recently, he managed the hotel quarantine program in Victoria, Australia. All right. Welcome back, Brad. Great to see you. And uh, it's been almost two years since we had you on discussing the risk calculator. And uh, we'll talk a little more about that today as well. But today we're going to focus on assessing risk of infection and air exchange. And we'll go into some CO2 pitfalls and SF6 benefits. So looking forward to it. First, before we get started, uh, or before we go into that, what's the uh, 
status of things in Australia right now? How, how are infections coming along? Are you all in lockdown anymore? Give us a little update if you would. Well, I think like so many other places, uh, the ability and willingness of people to continue what, what we call non-pharmaceutical interventions are, is, is becoming less and less. So we're not in lockdown. We haven't been in lockdown for a while, though here in Melbourne, we endured one of the longest lockdowns outside of China. Um, and we could talk more about what's happening in Australia when we get to get to the slides. But but like many other places, we have a new Omicron variant, BA5, coming on as a higher percentage of infections, and we may end up with another wave. Uh, we do have, um, in, in the first few months of this year, as many deaths from COVID as we did in the previous two years. So mm -hmm. I think things have kind of, quote unquote, returned to normal. We're still wearing masks on public transportation and in hospitals. But other than that, people are behaving generally as they did prior to the pandemic with you know, some minor percentage of people choosing to wear masks in public areas. And let's, uh, let's pull those slides up, John. We go into a little more detail on how things are going in Australia. I know the second slide here should give us a little more detail. So here we are. Why don't we go over this, Brett? Okay, so, so we're comparing Australia on the left side uh, and the U.S. on the right side. And of course, we're a much smaller country. Um, aggregate deaths here since the beginning of the pandemic is just a little over 9,000. And if you look on a population base, uh, that's about 0.03, 0.04% mortality, about a tenth of what you experienced in the US uh, adjusted for the population size. So we've had a remarkably different experience with the pandemic than you have had. And what do you attribute that to? Well, you know, it, there's a number of factors. I think a good, a good explanation for why we're not having the kind of morbidity and mortality that you guys experienced. So we've had a tremendously rapid and effective uptake of vaccination compared to the US. And uh, at this point, we're at 70% of the eligible population having received three or more doses, but we're still administering 15,000 boosters daily. Uh, and they've now offered a fourth uh, injection to people who are over the age of 65 or immune compromised. If anybody is interested in exploring this, there was a great article in the New York Times comparing Australia and the U.S. Uh, so this is about a month ago or so. But uh, they also talk a lot about some of the social factors and the cultures of trust that existed here where people were willing to, to lock down, where they are willing to get vaccines, et cetera. So the demographics are very similar between the two countries, but the experience was, was very, very different. How many million people are in Australia? Well, I think it's about 25. It was on that past slide. I think 25 okay. or 26 million people. So a little, what well, I guess that would be about uh, less than 10% of what we have here in the U.S. On, on a population-adjusted basis. Okay. All right, let's go to the next one, John. Okay, we're, we're uh, changing topics here. Uh, yeah. We're going to talk a little bit about tracer testing. Uh, and let me, let me just acknowledge, first of all, um, a lot of what I've learned and, and done, because I've been using tracers for many decades, uh, comes from my discussions and the book that was written by David Beer. 
so I just want to acknowledge his role. He worked with Bill Turner uh, and Jack Spangler at one point uh, in Massachusetts. Uh, so I, I owe quite a bit to David in terms of understanding how these tracers can be used. And we'll talk about today what's tracer testing and how it's used. So basically tracer testing is using either an introduced or already present substance uh, in order to track airflow indoors. It can also be used outdoors, but, but I think for us, the, most, the main focus is indoors. Let's go to the next slide. Okay, what can we learn about using tracers in occupied buildings? And we're gonna talk about two of these things in this list. We're gonna talk about quantifying effective ventilation rates and identification of pathways of air movement through buildings. But there's quite a number of other things that we could do with tracers as well. Let's go to the next slide. Thanks. What is a good tracer? Well, uh, a good tracer has to be inert. Uh, not absorbed into furnishings or building materials, non-toxic, non-allergenic, non-flammable, not normally present in air, and measurable uh, by uh, equipment that's free of interference and can be taken out into a building, and ideally relatively inexpensive. And probably the one substance that is particularly good at doing this is sulfahexafluoride, and that's why that's been used for you know, 30, 40 years to do tracer studies. Just uh, move to the next slide. I'm there just curious, what other, um, what other things are used as tracer gases? Is a CO, uh, for some reason, I'm thinking carbon monoxide was also used at one point. Yeah, I mean, obviously it's not non-toxic. Um, at very low concentrations, I guess you could say carbon monoxide might be safe. There's other gases that could be used that uh, are explosive uh, at higher concentrations, but not below the LAL. Uh, but basically, SF6 is, is particularly good because it's not reactive, and then because it's very easily detected at very low concentrations by virtue of its chemistry. Uh, it has one problem, though, and I note here that it has a global warming potential of 22,800, which means that 22 kilograms of SF6 has the same global warming as 500 tons of carbon dioxide. So because of that, we have to minimize our use of SF6. And uh, I generally uh, purchase an offset or have purchased an offset for the SF6 I've used because of its carbon imprint. But even still, we're only talking about 60 grams to do a, a building, a small building, uh, which is the equivalent of, say, a, a long domestic flight here in Australia or a short international flight. So it's certainly something to be paid attention to, but it's not something that would be a deal killer here. Okay, glad I asked. Let's Brad, Next. Brad, would, the, would, oh, there, yeah, would, would there be any advantage in being able to see the, uh, you know, the airflow patterns, the like, like using a smoke or something like that, that, theatrical smoke where you could actually see it? Yeah, theatrical smoke is great. And I've used theatrical smoke. And we'll also talk about carbon dioxide as okay. a naturally present tracer that we could use. But they have limitations. And uh, for example, if you're trying to track air movement through a building uh, from one floor to another, the theatrical smoke is not going to do it. But if you're trying to look at how on the roof of a building, the exhaust is being re-entrained into an adjacent intake, theatrical smoke might work really well. 
So, um, you know, there's a number of tools in the toolbox and there are times when theatrical smoke may be quite uh, effective. Um, obviously, one of the things, just as a caveat for anyone who starts using theatrical smoke, make sure you've disabled the smoke detectors. Right, right. right. Uh, otherwise, you may end up evacuating a 20-story building or something to that effect. And, you, and you, don't, you don't have to do that for the SF6 then because there's such okay. a small amount? No. Yeah, we're talking about very, very gram, gram quantities. Right, that's what you said, gram 60 quantities. grams, right? Yeah, two hours. And you have about to... part per million concentrations, uh, but that's part of the advantage of having equipment that can measure portable equipment that can measure very, very either part per billion. You know, my equipment goes down to two hundred ppb, uh, so we're not using a lot of SF six. Okay, let's go to the next one, John. Okay, so I mentioned uh, two uses that we talk about today. This is a, uh, a, a project I worked on many decades ago. There's a little more detail in my research gate and academia.com uh, listings on this particular project. I did this work in conjunction with Brookhaven National Laboratory and Russell Dietz, who has developed or had developed, I'm not sure if he's still working this stage because this was several decades ago, a family of perfluorocarbon tracers. So uh, in one of these uh, buildings on the fourth floor, there were complaints of air quality. Uh, there was issues that perhaps it might have something to do with the uh, hoods that were being used. But I did notice that that area was under relatively low pressure uh, compared to other portions of the building. So there was this possibility that contaminants were moving into that area as well. Uh, so we tagged a number of possible sources of contamination, including the hoods that were in this laboratory. And then in the middle of the street, you see in front, uh, we were able to block off traffic and drop tracer into the sewer lines. Now we're talking over 100 meters from the building. Uh, the airflow for that particular laboratory came from an underground uh, air handling unit that was three or four levels below ground. And it was uh, a large fan that was uh, adjacent to the perimeter wall of the building. So there was a concrete foundation wall between the fan room and the soil on the other side of the wall. Uh, and like most fan rooms, it was under three or four inches of negative uh, static pressure. So, so what we eventually found happening was that the tracer was coming out of the sewer lines and coming through the soil through the concrete wall and into that highly depressurized fan room where it was being blown several hundred meters away to the laboratory. Hmm. So that was not something that we were able to figure out absent the use of the tracer. And the explanation for what happened was it turns out that in the courtyard area, there was lots of construction with heavy vehicles. A number of sewer lines were, were crushed and you basically had sewer gases that were permeating the soil. And with that very, very uh, high negative static pressure area being adjacent to the soil and the porosity of concrete, it was literally able to pull the sewer gases into the fan room and then distribute it downstream to this laboratory. So, Brad, was this an odor complaint? What's that? Was it a, an odor complaint? Yeah, it was an odor and illness complaint. Uh, the odor wasn't always present. Uh, people were getting ill. 
occasionally somebody said it smelled stale or it smelled like rotting vegetables, but it wasn't, it wasn't a very explicit, you know, we're, we're smelling sewer gases thing. It was a, <laughs> it was a perception at probably what would have been considered to be sub uh, perceptible levels for odor thresholds. Interesting. Yeah, so that's an example of how we can track air movement through buildings. Next, John. So this, this, if we want to use tracer gases to quantify air exchange, air changes per hour, there's basically three methods, uh, constant decay method, a constant emission method, and a constant concentration method. In the decay method, we're measuring the uh, decay of a tracer that's been released and the release has stopped and we're watching it decay as the outdoor air replaces the indoor air. So we're watching that decay curve. A constant emission method is that we are controlling an emission in order to maintain uh, a, a constant concentration. So we're actually not going to be talking about the latter two approaches. We're just going to talk today about a constant decay method which is the easiest of the three to implement. And probably the most commonly used, would you say? Yeah, I think, I think the, the latter two methods are much less commonly used. And uh, the ASTM and ISO both have uh, standard methods uh, for single zone air exchange using tracer gas dilution. So this method is, is well established and has been around for quite a while. And you could access the uh, either of these two standards. Okay. Let's do the next slide. Okay, so basically we release the tracer. We verify that a constant concentration has built up in a single zone, and then we track its decay over time. Next. And this is an example of the equipment that's used. Um, I think one disadvantage of using SF6 versus say carbon dioxide is that we do require some specialized equipment. And there's a number of different technologies that can be used for measuring SF6, but I'm particularly fond of FTIR, Fourier Transformed Infrared Spectroscopy, because it is both quick, uh, sensitive, and precise. So this is the equipment that I've been using. Um, what we have there is an FTIR spectrophotometer. And then if we go to the next slide, we've got uh, this, this is reading the entire IR band. Uh, and what you're looking at in the center of that, uh, I think there may be a little circle that's gonna appear. If you hit the next, there we go. That happens to be the carbon dioxide uh, signal. But each of these signals for the different substances is very unique. So SF6, by virtue of the fact that it has six sulfur fluoride bonds, the vibration of that and absorption of infrared energy is very, very distinctive and strong. Uh, so detecting uh, a particular gas in a complex mixture at low concentrations is a really uh, good application for SF6 using FTIR. Right. Can we go back one slide for just a minute? Um, the the tanks, the bottles, are the, is that where the SF6 is then? Yeah, yeah. Uh, I'm, there's a carrier gas that's used for the FTIR reference beam. And then there is uh, SF6 is in a tank. And I happen to do both CO2 and SF6. And I'm hoping to publish a paper comparing the two. 
So you're actually looking at CO2 bottles there as well. But and a lot FT of the of CO2 has to be used compared to how much SF6 we use. Okay. And the FTIR instrument, ballpark, I mean, are they a $5,000, $10,000, $50,000 piece of equipment? Yeah, that's another disadvantage. Um, what you're looking at here is $120,000 Australian. Okay. So, uh, you know, 5,000 for the cart and a couple of thousand for the computer and, uh, you know, say 50,000 50, for the IR spectrophotometer. Uh, and then we'll talk about that other instrument. Move on to the next slides and I'll show you what the other instrument is doing. There we go. Okay, so the other instrument is a multi-point sampler. So it enables us to run quarter-inch nylon tubing to eight different locations within the building and have all those samples being continuously drawn into the multipoint sampler and then sequentially presented to the FTIR. So because one of the first criteria for doing a, a, a single zone tracer study is to establish an even concentration throughout the building, that enables us to verify that the criteria for the tests have been established and then track the decay in eight different locations simultaneously. <laughs> So that's Excellent. that's another element. That's not as expensive. That's maybe a ten thousand dollar instrument, but but nonetheless, that's computer controlled, and the whole thing has to have valves turning on and off, and you know, sample streams diverted to the detector, and the detector flushed, and on and on. So that's what's happening there. Interesting. This is what you get out of that uh, analysis, and what you see is the tracer having been released on the left hand side. Um, and varying concentrations throughout the building. And as the air circulates, basically the concentration equilibrates throughout the entire building. And in here, it looks like it equilibrated somewhere around two parts per million of SF6. At that point, we could actually begin the decay uh, calculations, or at least we could watch the decay occur. And you could see kind of a little bit of uh, drop on the uh, concentration as we are to the right of that uh, orange square. Let's, let's go to the next slide. And this is an example of the concentration decay that's occurring in a school building with the windows closed. And you can see the vast drop. Let's go to the next line. It looks like it's quick, huh? Yeah, at, at that point there, the windows were opened and we have a much quicker drop of the concentration of SF6. <laughs> let's go to the next one. So now what we've got is if we take the natural logarithm of the concentration of SF6 on the y-axis, um, and on the x-axis, if we plot uh, hours, time in hours, um, we're gonna get a curve, uh, which is the logarithmic equivalent of the exponential decay curve that you would normally see uh, when you looked at the actual values of SF6. So th this is the natural log of the values plotted against time, and we end up with a straight line. Uh, and that's an exponential decay. And the slope of that line is the unitless quantity that we call air changes per hour. So for this particular situation, you could see that, that the, uh, there's a really good correspondence between the theoretical straight line and the actual measured values. So the, the air exchange during this particular test in classroom seven was 0.34 air changes per hour. 
Next. Okay, so uh, why are we bothering to measure air exchange? That's the question here. And this gets back to the uh, risk calculator that I presented uh, a year ago, year and a half ago, whatever. Um, if we understand something about the building, uh, if we understand something about SARS-CoV-2, and we understand something about the personal factors that relate to both the generation rate and the dose that someone might experience, using this type of a modeling approach, uh, which obviously has limitations, but at least is a, is a tool that we can make use of, we could understand far field transmission and predict which rooms and which buildings represent the greatest risk and which represent the least risk and provide some guidance to building owners in terms of interventions or how to manage and use their building stock. So just a reminder that when we talk about this type of modeling, we're talking about far field transmission. We're not talking about near field transmission. So if you're within two meters of someone, you're going to have a highly enhanced aerosol exposure because of your closeness to that person. But if you're on the other side of the room, we know that that's also a transmission mechanism, what I've called far field transmission here. Uh, and that's what we're talking about. And there's evidence to indicate that while the majority of uh, exposures may be occurring because people are within two meters of each other, uh, there's plenty of examples of far field transmission that also occurs. So far field is a significant percentage of overall transmission, perhaps not as significant as near field, but once we adjust for near field transmission by uh, social distancing, this is a way that we could manage far field transmission. <laughs> Let's do the next slide. So this modeling uses what's called the compartment model and the Wells-Riley model. And the compartment model uh, is something that we would have used you know, 20 years ago if we wanted to understand how much styrene is in the room if you have an industrial process that's generating a certain emission rate of styrene in the room. So it's basically a first order differential equation where we have air flowing in, air flowing out. Uh, we have an exchange rate of air. We have a source emission rate. And you just simply solve the math. Uh, here, here we solve the maths. In the US, we solve the math to determine the airborne concentration. And there you could, whoops, go back to that for a second. Yeah, there you go. And you could basically see what we're talking about. So you have air flowing in, you have air flowing out, you have a generation rate of a contaminant, uh, you have infiltration, exfiltration, uh, all of that is occurring. And you solve the math here and you end up with the concentration, the average concentration in the air of the space. So that's the compartment model. Okay, let's move on. The Wells-Riley infection model uh, basically takes the airborne concentration, factors in time and breathing rate to derive an exposure to an individual in the far field, and then calculates a percentage likelihood of infection. And all of this is based on a uh, source emission rate uh, that's uh, measured in quanta per hour. And a quanta is defined as the amount of infective material that would uh, cause disease in 63% of exposed persons. So this Wells-Riley equation is several decades old. It dates back to the 50s. Um, but it would hold for a number of different types of airborne organisms, you know, from measles to SARS-CoV-1 to SARS-CoV-2 uh, or whatever. 
So this enables us to understand uh, something about the risk if we know the airborne concentration, which of course we've calculated using the compartment model. Interesting. Next. So how do we combine all of this? Um, and I'm pulling from a spreadsheet model that was developed, I think going back to March or April of 2020 from Jose Jimenez and his colleagues at the University of Colorado in Boulder. And you can see the address there, tinyurl.com slash COVID estimator. This is a free uh, risk estimator. It was one of the first ones that was out there. And uh, because it's a spreadsheet-based estimator, it, it, it isn't something you would just simply hand the building owner. You have to understand quite a bit of the assumptions built in to use it. But, but basically, it incorporates building factors, time, and virus characteristics, as you can see here. Uh, you input the size of the room, which creates its volume. And you can see it's 275 cubic meters. You input the duration of event, three hours. You input the ventilation, the decay rate of the virus, and the deposition to surfaces. And the 0.63 and 0.24 come out of the literature. Some of the work that Buonono did in Italy uh, out of Professor Morawska's group and others. That, that these are kind of consensus values uh, and really have to do more with the particle physics than the virus per se. Um, and then if we go to the next slide, Hmm. You input the breathing rate, which could vary based on activity. So if you're in a gym class, this might change from people sitting at rest, or it might change for children versus adults. The 0.26 is the child breathing rate, 0.52 would be the adult breathing rate cubic meters per hour. Uh, and then you need to establish the quanta exhalation rate. How many quanta per hour? Are, are being emitted. Uh, and with the variance, this is going to be need to be adjusted because what we've seen is that as the virus mutates, it becomes more infectious, which means that the quanta goes up. So in this case, they have a little, uh, you know, that, that line 53 enhancement due to variance uh, is going to simply multiply the quanta exhalation rate to whatever the current variant might be, be it BA2 or BA5 or, or whatever, the original Wuhan variant. And then we could add in the use of PPE or something like that to one of these calculators. Brad, real, case, real quick question. Um, as far as the variables on the um, quanta exhalation rate, is there any... I keep seeing that, you know, some people during certain periods of infection are more infectious and, and have a higher number of viral particles in their, in their, you know, uh, sinuses and they're breathing out more. Is that something that would change ever? Yeah, this is a really uh, important issue that you've brought up. And that is that we, there is, two to three to maybe four orders of magnitude difference in the quanta that you might inhale versus what I might exhale um, because of our differing respiratory anatomy, because of whether or not the virus is present in the upper versus lower respiratory system, and because of all sorts of unknown factors. So it's very difficult to, to choose an appropriate quanta exhalation rate uh, and that's a very uncertain 
parameter in these in this modeling. So when we have super spreader events, there's probably two factors that are that are influencing those super spreader events. One is that there may be particularly you know disadvantageous environmental conditions, a very small room, very poor air exchange, or there could be someone who is exhaling uh, infective material orders of magnitude more efficiently than some other person. Uh, so there's personal characteristics that come into play having to do with your particular infection, as well as your behaviors. Obviously, if you're singing, you're emitting more respiratory particulate than if you're simply sitting and breathing and studying or whatever. But even then, there's vast differences from one individual to another. And I think uh, you have a copy of the, uh, the school's brochure that I authored for ERA, which is the ASHRAE equivalent here in Australia. And it has a, uh, a chart that shows the variation from one person to another that was measured in terms of particle exhalation for particular particle sizes. So this, this is a, an extremely uncertain uh, measure in this modeling. Okay, next. So once you put those inputs in pertaining to the person, the building and the characteristics of the virus, you end up with a probability of infection. Uh, given one infected person and one susceptible person in the room. Uh, so there's, there's generally a lack of understanding that uh, your risk of infection is the same regardless of how many other people are in the room if one person is infected. So if you have uh, two, two circumstances, one with 20 people in the room, you and 19 others, and one of those persons is in, is infected and you're in the far field, your risk of infection is completely independent of the other 18 non-infected persons who are with you in the room. So for example, if there's just two of you in the room, okay, an infected person and a susceptible person, and you're not close to each other, you're in the far field, your risk of infection is just the same as if there was 17 other people in the room with you or 18 other people. So this is one of the reasons why when we talk about uh, ventilation strategies in buildings and we talk about something like uh, a VAV strategy where when the room is lightly occupied, the total flow drops down to 20% of maximum. This is why that type of strategy uh, has been recommended to be disabled during the pandemic uh, because uh, the only thing that's, that is important when it comes to crowding is the probability that you're going to have someone present who's infected or having more than one person present who's infected, which is a function of the prevalence in the community. Hmm. So that's a bit of a tough concept for people to understand. So while it's true, the message that crowding is of concern, it doesn't mean that it's okay if there's just two of you in a room, if that one person is infected, if that makes yeah. sense. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Okay. So the value of all of this, the value of this, uh, just go back for a second there. The value of all of this is to be able to understand and communicate the risk that a particular space has versus another. And even though the modeling has all sorts of inaccuracies built into it, it will give at least a rank order. If you have a series of rooms or buildings, it'll give you a sense of the rank order of risk of transmission between them. So for a building owner, 
or a manager, you could under, they could understand and you can communicate this to them. And perhaps they could prioritize any corrective interventions, whether it be additional ventilation or air cleaners, you know, where to, which rooms do you put the air cleaners in, uh, whether it be uh, upper room germicidal irradiation, UVGI with say far field UV or something like that. If this could help them understand and prioritize their buildings and rooms. Okay, interesting. Our marquee sponsor is First On Site, your trusted full service disaster recovery and property restoration company at firstonsite.com. Our association sponsors are ACGIH, Advancing Careers of Professionals in Environmental Health, Industrial Hygiene, and Safety, Interested in Defining Their Science, ACGIH.org, AIHA, Healthy Workplaces, A Healthier World, AIHA.org, The Cleaning Industry Research Institute, See More Deeply Through Science and Research, CIRI science.org the indoor air quality association iaqa.org the iicrc a non-profit standards development and certifying body for the cleaning and restoration industry iicrc.org industry sponsors are aeml laboratories free shipping great pricing same day results with no rush fee aemlinc.com particles plus Feature-rich particle counters and air quality instrumentation. Count on us. Particlesplus.com. TSI Inc., an industry leader in precision instrumentation for monitoring indoor air. Learn how to expand your IAQ investigations. TSI.com. Sunbelt Rentals. Availability, reliability, and ease for all your IAQ and restoration needs at sunbeltrentals.com. April Air, healthy air, healthy home, April, A-I-R-E.com. And Healthy Indoors Magazine, a free online magazine for industry professionals and consumers, healthyindoors.com. So now one of the inputs that we need to put into the model is the building factors. And one of, uh, we need to put in the air changes per hour. So uh, it's very easy to do the building dimensions with a laser uh, measure. You can go in and see the length, width, and ceiling height. But what do you put in in terms of ventilation air changes per hour? This is, this is a problem. That's this figure here uh, in the model. So basically, you have to put in the air changes per hour into the model in order to get the concentration, the average concentration in the air. So there's basically three ways you could measure air exchange. One is you could actually go in with a flow hood or something like that and measure the airflow coming in. Uh, or you can depend upon the commissioning data for the building, the design criteria. Another would be trying to use carbon dioxide to infer the air changes per hour. And a third is to do the testing with the tracer that I discussed earlier. Right. I mean, if we go back for just a minute, it, let's go back two slides, John. Uh, yeah, here. I noticed there's no, there, there is not a variable for the level of filtration within the mechanical system. Is that something that's just too hard to include in this? No, no. First of all, this is one model and there's probably 20 or 30 of them out there. Uh, okay. This model and others can be adapted to include recirculation and filtration, or it could be uh, 
what you see is that line 31 additional control measures. So if you had a air cleaner, a portable air cleaner that's providing filtration, that's where you would add in the air changes per hour going through the air cleaner. So if okay. the air cleaner was rated in terms of how many uh, cubic meters per hour, <laughs> sorry, I'm, I'm, I'm sorry. My brain switched over to the metric system. Um, and you know the volume of the space, so you could calculate uh, how many air changes per hour that portable air cleaner is providing. And that's where you stick it in. And that's gonna add in to the total first order loss rate. And that 14.37 number is what works into the Wells-Riley equation for the loss rate. So the common units that we're using uh, are air changes per hour. So that is not only the ventilation measurement, but we're measuring the decay rate of the virus in air changes per hour and deposition to surfaces in air changes per hour and the use of a portable air cleaner in air changes per hour or the equivalent effect that UVGI might provide in air changes per hour. And then that gives us our first order loss rate for calculating in the compartment model, the concentration in the air. If any of you have done work involving air quality uh, complaints in buildings or auditing for air quality, uh, if your experience has been anything like mine, what they tell you that you have on the prints for the building is a very different reality for what you see in actual use. So I've really learned from doing air quality assessments that the original design is very often not what's actually occurring in real life when you actually go and measure. Um, so relying on the design criteria for uh, the air exchange is problematic for a number of reasons. And we could go ahead um, next, just if you, yeah. So there's very often ductwork leakage. There is inefficiencies of distribution, short circuiting along the ceiling, uneven distribution in different branches. So uh, it's very questionable whether or not what's designed uh, is actually present. Uh, and when you actually measure the values, it's very hard to calculate. Uh, for example, if you have minimum flows and you're in heating mode and your supply is coming in on the ceiling and your return is coming out on the ceiling, you could be getting quite a bit of short circuiting of air. So you're not actually getting perfect mixing. So there's some real liabilities in, in trying to assess the air exchange rate in the building uh, using either the design or actual measurements. Let's go to the next slide. We've heard a lot about carbon dioxide and people carrying around carbon dioxide uh, meters uh, and using them to infer the ventilation rate in a, in a room. Um, so let's go keep, keep moving along here. Or in There's an airplane or wherever else. There's a couple of criteria that must uh, be satisfied if we want to use CO2 to estimate the ventilation rate. So first of all, because the CO2 is being exhaled by people, the number of people is critical uh, and they need to remain in the room for a sufficient period of time for the concentration to build up to a maximum or what we call steady state. If that occurs, if those criteria are met, then we can convert the steady state concentration to a effective ventilation rate. But we have to know the number of people and we have to make sure they're there for a long enough period of time. And the time to steady state is a function of the air exchange rate in the space. So for a very high air exchange rate, it could only take 20 minutes to reach steady state. 
But for a very low air exchange rate, for example, a naturally ventilated building, it can take up to 12 hours for steady state to be reached. Let's mm. go to the next slide. As a result of which, we uh, overestimate the air changes per hour. So this is a drawing that uh, I took from one or adapted from one in David Beard's uh, book, which I'm not sure if you could get a copy of it. It's called Indoor Air Quality and HVAC Systems. And it was published about 20 years ago. It's a great resource. Um, and if you look at the, uh, what you're looking at is six different curves, all of which are showing different numbers of people in the room in terms of density per hundred square meters. And if you look at time equal to one hour, for example, you'll see that for each of these different densities, the CO2 concentration is going to be different. And that's obviously intuitive. There's more people, more exhaled CO2, you're going to get different levels of CO2. Um, in all of these cases, the air exchange has been fixed at 0.37 air changes per hour. So for the first, let's push to the next slide. If we uh, you know, keep this at 0.37 and the next one, keep the density at that. If we use some type of a criteria like 800 part per million as being a safe ventilation level, then you could see that if we measure at one hour, all of these uh, different densities of, of, of uh, people, whoops, yep. would end up being, uh, we, would, we would think that this is a well-ventilated building. Even though with the highest density, the peak concentration of CO2 is 1,100, if we don't wait for four or five or six hours, we're not going to know that that level that we measure at one hour of 700 parts per million, we're not going to realize that that peak level isn't going to be reached for a number of hours. So uh, this is why it's important to understand how to use CO2 and the limitations in trying to apply it to decision-making pertaining to ventilation. Now, now we can go to the next slide. So it turns out that the ventilation rate times the time is going to equal three. So if we have uh, six air changes per hour, it's only gonna take a half an hour to reach steady state, okay? So if we have a high air exchange, and let's keep moving through this one, you'll see some other numbers appearing. If you have a high air exchange, it won't take much time. But if you have air exchange rates that are less than one air change per hour and naturally ventilated schools or buildings may very well be down in the 0.25 air changes per hour or 0.5 air changes per hour, the time to steady state is very long. That means the space has to be uh, occupied continuously by the people for that entire period of time. Let's go to the next slide. So the magnitude of error uh, changes based upon the ventilation rate. So at more than one air change per hour, the error is relatively small, 5%. But once we get down into the half an air change per hour and less, we're talking 30, 40, 70, 100% error in assuming that the CO2 value at three hours is the steady state, steady state peak value. You know, Brad, in, in one of the documents you sent me, I, 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 there was a diagram of uh, when a window's closed, when a window's open. Would this be a good time to bring that in? Sure, we could, we could take a look at that. John, let's take a look. I found this fascinating. Could you explain this for our listeners, if you would? Well, 
Uh, overall, air exchange is important, but the direction of the air exchange is also critically important. We really haven't been talking about that today much, but um, really this gets to the whole issue of uh, uniform concentration in the space. So ideally, we're looking for uh, the, the two that are mentioned better, uh, two openings on opposite walls or two op openings on adjacent walls is going to get a much better directional flow and a much better air exchange rate than the other openings that are shown on the left. So a single opening is not going to be very effective, as well as two openings on the same wall, less effective than when you have adjacent or opposite walls for airflow. So there's a lot of ways that we could bring in this concept of total air exchange and directional flow. So for example, say in an office building, um, if we had displacement ventilation and air was being introduced at floor level and it was rising, and by the buoyancy of hot air rising around each of us, it was moving upward and carrying our exhalation upward towards the exhaust, then we have a very effective source control methodology to minimize the dilution of exhaled contaminants in and around throughout the room. So it's really important to consider the directional flow of the air. Uh, right now, for mechanical systems, we depend on a turbulent mixing model, where you blow air in at a high velocity, it entrains the room air, and in theory, it creates a pattern of flow in the room, a circular pattern where air moves from the ceiling down to the floor and travels around in circles and that sort of thing. But there's actually many more effective ventilation strategies that we could consider, either personal ventilation or displacement ventilation, where we could control the flow pattern and we could minimize risk in that manner. And we haven't really done that. You know, we... Uh, looked at strategies like displacement ventilation because they save energy, not necessarily because they reduce infection risk potential. But the truth is that we have to have solutions going forward that meet both sustainability goals and infection control goals. And the reality is that we can do that. With intelligent design and operation, we can meet both of those criteria. We don't necessarily have to sacrifice sustainability for infection control. It's just a question of putting our minds to it and building buildings that meet both criteria. Now, we're, we're dealing a lot with existing buildings and existing schools. I'm thinking you're almost never going to have two openings on opposite walls. However, you will have a hallway on the opposite wall. Would it make sense to open a window and the door? Well, it could. Um, for example, if you talk about strategies for improving air exchange in a building, let's say you had the ability to create additional exhaust ventilation in the hallway. In other words, depressurize the hallway, either because you add in a fan or you uh, modify existing ventilation infrastructure or whatever, or you convert a, uh, a clear story type window or something like that uh, to an exhaust. If you then depressurize the hallway and you open up a window, you are going to get that kind of flow. So um, working with a particular building, there may be strategies where you can make use of that kind of an approach. I just found this to be a really interesting and, and it, clear and easy to understand diagram. So I appreciate you bringing that up and uh, sending it to me. Let's go back to the slides, John. 
Okay, so this is an actual um, tracing of a classroom here in Australia. Uh, varying occupancy screws up CO2 levels. So the gray line is the occupancy pattern. So on the right-hand side, you see that uh, the occupancy peaks out at about 32 children and teachers. Uh, they come in for a short period of time, like homeroom at the beginning of the day, and then all the kids leave and the only people remaining are two teachers. And that's why that gray line doesn't reach zero, it stops at two. Five minutes pass or 10 minutes pass in between periods and suddenly there's now 32 children in the classroom. It remains that way for 45 minutes and then everyone leaves. And that's the sawtooth pattern that you're seeing in terms of occupancy. That same sawtooth pattern is reflected in the carbon dioxide levels because given that it's a dynamic system, it's responding to uh, the addition of uh, uh, CO2 and then the removal of CO2 via the ventilation system. So we never see the peak levels of CO2 here. As the curve starts building, uh, occupancy ceases and it changes and drops. This is the typical pattern that we, that we see. So it's, it's very tough to infer what the CO2 level at peak would be in these circumstances. Let's go to the I, next slide. I guess I want to clarify, Brad. I don't think you're saying don't ever use CO2 because, you know, a lot of people, we don't have access to the, you know, the tracer gas, et cetera. Sure. But if you are using CO2, then take into consideration these potential pitfalls. Well, I'll move to that. It's a great okay. point. And let's go to the next slide and you'll see what, what I have to say. So yes, use CO2. If you walk into that room and the CO2 level is 1,000 or 1,500 or 2,500 or whatever, that is what I'm calling a true positive. For sure, we have poor ventilation in that room for the given occupancy. So assuming the room isn't stuffed with 60 people when there should only be a typical occupancy of 30, okay, if you walk into a room and it's very high, you know that it's a true positive. The issue comes when we have moderate CO2 levels that are actually false negatives. Because if we haven't had the uh, occupancy there for a long enough period to reach a high level, like you saw in the chart, then we might think that it's a safe environment to be in because the levels are less than 800, even though the air exchange is relatively low. The issue is you didn't have full occupancy when you measured it, or you didn't wait long enough. So there's no problem with the true positive. Uh, and, and a CO2 meter is a great tool for that. It's the, these false negatives, that's the issue. Interesting, okay. Now I'm understanding this better. All right, here's some others. So uh, once we have this value, uh, then we can input it into the equation and we can understand what's going on. Let's go to the next. Next slide. So here's some actual data from a classroom. And uh, this is the data you saw earlier in terms of the tracing. So there's three classrooms, two office areas, and the air changes per hour was measured with the windows closed uh, and with, then with the windows open. And the first thing you might notice is that with the windows closed, the air exchange in the classroom is all less than one air change per hour. <laughs> so yeah. this, is, this is as a result of natural infiltration and exfiltration. So it ranges from 0.29 to 0.77 air changes per hour, and also less than one air change per hour 
in the two offices and staff rooms. This is really typical of a naturally ventilated building with the windows closed. So based on how tight the building is, this could be as low as 0.1 air changes per hour, or it could be uh, 1.0 air changes per hour for a leaky building. But you can see that those are very low levels of air exchange. What's dramatic is how the air changes per hour increase with the windows open. And I'm thinking these numbers are just estimates because the air flow through the room is so fast that the concentration of tracer drops so rapidly, I often only have two or three data points with which to draw the curve. So these are kind of rough estimates of what the air changes per hour are with the windows open. But you can see the dramatic difference uh, in air changes per hour from 0.29 to 13.5 is, is dramatic. Only in two of the three rooms. What happened with that classroom number three, Brad? Yeah, that's, you see, this is very interesting. And what happened with that classroom three is that when the windows were opened in all three classrooms, because of the prevailing wind, because of the configuration of the rooms, because of the types and size and number of windows, the air from classrooms one and two moved through classroom three to exit the building. Okay. So the concentration of tracer in classroom three did not decrease with time very rapidly because it was being supplemented by flows from classrooms one and two. So hmm. outdoor air was flowing in to classroom one or two, and it was then flowing in and carrying the tracer to classroom three. So there was more tracer uh, in classroom three when the windows everywhere were opened up than uh, when the natural decay occurred by infiltration and exfiltration. I've done a number of buildings. This is the one time that I saw that this really unusual phenomenon. But, you know, it reminds us that we learn things from doing tracer studies that we wouldn't ordinarily understand or see. Uh, so... That's, that's why you see that there was an increase in risk with an opening of the doors and windows. Of course, that was very temporary because the tracer cleared out rather quickly. But it does suggest that air is moving from classrooms one and two into classroom three. So if this was as a result of an outbreak uh, and it was in classroom three that the majority of the children became infected and the persons who were infected were in classrooms one or two or both, this would explain why the susceptibles in classroom three became infected because of that air movement through the building that was asymmetric. And, and that may also help you determine where to deploy things like portable air cleaners. Um, maybe they're more important in classroom three than in one and two. Yeah, exactly. And you can see now when we take those air change per hour values and we input them to uh, a risk model, we go from 6.9% for classroom one to less than 1%. Hmm. So really what this shows is that you're getting an 88% reduction in risk by opening up the windows, which is quite dramatic. And in the other classroom, it was a 91% reduction in risk. And this is typical of what you see in, in buildings with operable windows when you open the windows. Now, this the phenomenon is, of the air moving from one and two into three is quite unusual. Normally, you would just see a 90% reduction in risk as a result of opening the windows. And this, is, this says the windows and doors, I believe. Yeah, in this case, uh, the windows and the doors were open, yes. Okay. 
That's a pretty good reduction right there, 88%. Yeah, it's a dramatic reduction. And of course, it's totally consistent with what recommendations have been made, which is uh, if you have a building with operable doors and windows, open them. And if it's a cool environment and you can't keep them open continuously, open them for five minutes every hour or something to that effect so that you can clear out the accumulated infective material that's building up in the space as people spend time. You know, another thing I found interesting with respect to the design of buildings, and and John, we may have a slide for this you could pull up. Ceiling height has a lot to do with, um, there we go, uh, the potential for infection as well. Yeah, this is from, uh, there was an uh, exercise called the uh, Airline Public Health Initiative that was conducted by Harvard School of Public Health by Jack Spangler leading a group, a technical group to do this work. It was done under contract to the major airlines and the airports throughout the world. That's this Airline Public Health Initiative uh, effort. And they modeled both risk of infection on airplanes what they called uh, you know, gate to gate. And then they measured in a second edition, they looked at the issues of risk of infection within the airport. So getting back and forth to the airport, taking a shuttle bus from the parking lot to the terminal, going through the check-in process, going through security, waiting at the gate, et cetera, et cetera. So what this is, is I, I modeled for that effort, uh, the impact on risk having to do with time, and uh, ventilation rate and ceiling height. So this was at boarding gates. And if you look at the 40-minute tracing, you can see there's four different conditions, ceiling heights of three, four, six, and eight meters. And of course, when you have a ceiling height of three meters, you have the highest risk because you have the smallest volume of space in which the exhaled infective material is dissolving. So this goes back to the compartment model, our box model, where we uh, look at the average concentration in the air. The bigger the box for the same exhalation rate, the lower the concentration in the air. Okay, so hopefully that's somewhat intuitive. But what's interesting about this uh, drawing is that it shows the dramatic effect that ceiling height has on reducing the risk. So if we go from three to four meter ceiling, at three air changes per hour, we go from 2% to less than 1%. That's the far left blue bar on the bottom left of the drawing, right? We go from 2% to what looks like something like 0.9%. And the effect of ceiling height is greater than the effect of air changes per hour. So if you're in a situation with a three meter ceiling and you went all the way from three air changes per hour to six air changes per hour, a doubling of the exchange rate, you're going from 2% risk to 1.4%. But had that room been a four meter ceiling instead of a three meter ceiling, you would have dropped down to 0.9%. So the the point of this is is that time is is critical in terms of exposure, but then the volume of the room, the size of the room you're in is important as well. And it's not just the footprint, it's the ceiling height, because in the far field, I guess you could say the solution of pollution is dilution. Mm -hmm. So with a much larger volume to dilute that exhaled air in, the concentration is much lower in the far field and the risk of infection is much lower. So I think it's important to appreciate that ceiling height plays an enormous role in the risk of infection. 
And yeah. if you're choosing between rooms or environments which to occupy, or you're concerned about your personal risk and you're deciding which restaurant to go eat at, uh, going to one that has a very high ceiling is going to be way more protective. You know, this slide has just changed the design of the new gym we're putting in at the uh, lodge up the road. We're, I, I'm going to, you know, right now they have uh, drop ceilings and it's only about an eight foot ceiling. Well, right. there's four feet up there. I'm going to figure out a way where we can drop that ceiling maybe a foot instead of four feet. And uh, during the remodeling, that will happen because, you know, we're in a gym. That's where you get a lot of exhalation. People are working out. There's sometimes crowded. Um, and I'm trying to figure out ways to keep it safe. And this really struck home with me. Thank you. Well, I mean, there's, there's a couple of other things you could do, too. With a high ceiling, you could use something like UVGI so that the air floating around the gym is spending a significant amount of time at that upper room area being irradiated with germicidal UV. Mm -hmm. That would be another thing you can do. And you could try and create a flow pattern where you introduce the air, perhaps at floor level, near where people are, uh, are actively exercising and removing it at ceiling level and trying to create, rather than a turbulent mixing model, a linear flow of air. And then even better would be if you had the exhaust somewhere very close to where the person is exhaling. Because we know from occupational hygiene Okay, that capturing a contaminant at its source is always better than waiting until it dilutes throughout the room. So any type of an exhaust system that captures exhalation at its source would be ideal. Now, the other thing I'll be able to do is um, open the doors into the hallway, which normally I would probably tell people keep them closed. We do have operable windows. We'll open the windows. We'll open the doors. We'll get the ceiling up higher. And even when we're not using, because there's going to be times when we don't need any uh, real mechanical system running, you know, it's, we'll probably have some mini splits in there, but uh, very interesting. There's a couple quick, easy things that we can do. And that, that I think will be very helpful. Okay. So uh, just to <clears throat> kind of summarize some of the things that we talked about, um, I do want to also mention that uh, although CO2 spot measurements may not be very reliable in terms of understanding the air changes per hour, we can also use CO2 as a tracer gas using the decay method. So if you could empty the building very quickly at the end of the day, then you could look at the decay of CO2 in the building and do the exact same calculations that we did with SF6. So the trick is getting everyone out of the building at the same time mm -hmm. uh, and not having a lot of people remaining in the building generating CO2. So let's say that the building as a whole has a uniform concentration of CO2, which you can test for, uh, and it's suddenly emptied out and there's no one in it. By measuring the decay of CO2, we could do the same calculations that I showed you where we do the log transformation. Uh, in that case, we would do the difference between the measured CO2 and the outdoor air CO2. That would be our y-axis, the log of that value. And then time would be on the lower axis. And then we would be able to be using CO2 as a tracer gas. Uh, additionally, like one of the ways I've used CO2 as a tracer gas is I've uh, augmented 
the existing CO2 with additional CO2. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we don't really need to be concerned about CO2 levels from a health perspective, uh, even in the thousands of parts per million. So the, you know, we can go up to two, three, four, five thousand 5,000 ppm CO2 in a building without being concerned about health. Obviously, CO2 is a greenhouse gas, just like SF6, albeit less potent. But that is another way to do a tracer study is to do it in that manner, looking at the decay. So sometimes, for example, on a Friday night, uh, everyone clears out of the building. There's no one there. If it's a big enough building and the only person there is the custodian, then perhaps you might be able to do a CO2-based tracer decay study. But using CO2 in a spot mode is not going to be as reliable as using something like a dedicated tracer gas. Uh, and that's going to be more useful in terms of getting the air changes per hour and plugging it into this type of a, a risk calculator, web-based risk calculator to, to calculate the percentage risk of infection. And again, the purpose of this whole thing is to help building owners manage their buildings and to explain these issues to stakeholders. I'm curious, sir, are you um, doing a good bit of this now in Australia? Is that a big part of your practice? I know you still do some expert witness stuff, but um, have you have you been through schools and, and is this uh, something you've been using regularly? Yeah, I have done a number of different school buildings and public buildings. Um, I still do a lot of mold related work. Um, and I imagine I'm going to continue to do that because unlike the U.S., where mold is not covered by insurance, here, uh, if you have a flood, it's, it's covered under the consequences of a sudden loss or a sudden release of water. So we never went through that transition. Uh, that happened in the U.S. where the, basically the insurers sent around the letter to everyone saying we're no longer going to cover mold as a consequence of a sudden and unexpected loss. Obviously, any type of maintenance-related mold has never been covered here and never was covered in the U.S., but flooding, which we've seen a lot of here in Australia, would be covered, the mold would be covered as a consequence of that flooding or a storm that causes water to come in through the roof or a sudden release from a plumbing burst, that kind of a thing. I also want to mention for our audience that uh, we will put a link in Cliff's blog and we'll also put up on our website the guidance document for primary and secondary schools, COVID-19 ventilation optimization. That's an um, Australian Institute of Refrigeration, Air Conditioning and Heating document. Thank you for pointing it out to us and uh, letting us take a look through it and go over this whole excellent presentation with you, Brad. Thank you for the opportunity, and it's always a pleasure. I'm a, I'm a very faithful listener to your program. Oh, so, thank you. Uh, I've really enjoyed uh, all of the interviews over the years. Um, so I very much appreciate the work that you do and, and appreciate the opportunity to also be on. Well, the, the feeling is mutual. Cliff, any final thoughts or questions? No, no, I, I just, I, I love the window stuff. Uh, we're writing a new fire standard, and I just think it's important to open up the windows while we're, you know, working inside of these buildings and so on and so forth. I just think it's uh, real important. And, um, you know, having some data, uh, you know, that's been proven and, and tested you know, in regards to COVID, 
uh, you know, air changes and so on and so forth. I think it's going to be very, very useful for us. I think. We're yeah, gonna... you know, um, this is just an aside, but many, many years ago, I traveled to Stockholm, uh, Sweden, and did a study tour. And one of the things I saw um, that was quite interesting was painters would put a an inflatable. Uh, boy, I don't know how to describe this. It was a fan attached to what was a kind of like an inflatable box that they could stick in the window and it would expand and fill the space of the window mm-hmm. and it would basically very efficiently expel the air in the room. Hmm. So, uh, and because every construction site and every painting site was different, right. the configuration of the window was different. So you couldn't have anything that was fixed, but because this thing inflated when you turned on the fan, it made a nice seal within the window frame, irregardless of the dimensions, mm-hmm. and very effectively blew the air out of the space. So that's- I'm going to see if I'm going to see if I can find it. I'll, I'll do some Google searching because I suspect, uh, you know, if it was available then, it's probably available now. Yeah, I, I've I've never seen them in other countries, and this was you know decades ago in Sweden, mm-hmm. but it seemed to me such a ridiculously simple and effective way to remove the, the solvent vapors that they were generating uh, and take it from job to job and job. So rather than try and jury rig a fan in the window or right, use right. cardboard and duct tape or whatever, right, right, this right. was incredibly swift to put up and, and demobilize and extremely effective. Thank you. I'll check it out. Always a pleasure. Brad Prezant. Uh, Prezant. I'm going to make sure I get that proper pronunciation and... Uh, when I've got guys, I know people like you are listening to the show or watching the show. I always get a little nervous that I'm going to screw something up, but uh, I'll keep trying to do the right thing. <laughs> it's great to have you. And uh, please, uh, we'll, we'll definitely be back in touch. And uh, by the way, uh, I'm sure we'll get some questions from listeners. We'll forward them on to you. And then uh, hopefully we'll see you again here in uh, another couple of years. Thank you so much. All right, Brad. Cheers, thank you so much. All right. Our thanks to this week's guest, Brad Prezant, my co-host, the Z-Man, Cliff Slotnick. John, you got to have faith at the controls. And most importantly, our loyal audience and sponsors. Next week, we welcome Bill Southern, Dr. Bill Southern, and Chris Mikrot to discuss their recent work on misalignment between clinical mold antigen extracts and airborne molds found in water-damaged homes. July 8th, we've got three of the scientists that were part of the recent National Academy of Science document, Why Industry Indoor Chemistry Matters. And then on, uh, we'll have a part two on that one, by the way, in July. But on July 15th, we've got Dr. Charlie Weschler joining us. So it's going to be a great month and a great summer. We'll take a little summer break as we normally do. But uh, as, as always, thank you all for joining us on IAQ Radio. For IAQ Radio, I'm Spike Reed saying thanks for listening. 